0: stories, and it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses at hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, an American pioneer was born, not a Lewis and Clark-style pioneer, but a business pioneer nonetheless that made so many American lives better. Companies fail,
1: a lot. Only half will survive the first five years and only one third will survive the first 10 years. And say you make it to becoming one of the largest companies in America, your odds at staying there, incredibly low. Of the Fortune 500 companies in 1955, only 12% remain on that list today. And many don't even exist. This pioneer not only faced these headwinds to survival, he also faced the headwinds of his company being a family company, which has its own set of unique challenges, and of him being the second-generation owner, a generation where 70% of family-owned businesses fail. This man passed that test, barely, and largely because of his guidance of the next generation. His company still survives and thrives in the third generation, a generation where 88% of all family-owned businesses have failed. What is it about this man that overcomes all odds? Well, a lot of things. But it starts with just one thing. With his father, Hendrik Meyer. Seeing him, young Fred, not as part of the second generation, but the first. As his own peer. It's perhaps the only story like this for an enterprise this successful. One that would be on the Fortune 500 list if it were a publicly traded company. And it was a business that wasn't started purposefully. It was started out of necessity. In 1907, Hendrik immigrated to the United States, leaving his home country of the Netherlands behind, and leaving his fiance behind. A fiance who he'd string along for years as he rather indecisively tried to settle on a career. As his future grandson, Hank Meyer, told us
2: My grandmother finally gives him an ultimatum get a job, settle down, or it's off. They're both in their in their middle and later 20s. Uh, her friends are getting married, starting families, settling down, and she's getting postcards from Chicago and Yakima, Washington and <laughs> little towns around Michigan.
1: He eventually decides on becoming a barber and decides to bring his patient bride over a whole five years after their engagement and separation. They're now living a comfortable life in Greenville, Michigan, and to get ahead, He takes the vacant lot he owns next to his barbershop and builds a building that he can rent out to tenants. At least, that was the idea.
2: He rents out half of the building, but the other half he can't find a tenant for. And without that rental income, now you're into the depths of the Great Depression, he can't meet his bank loan, his mortgage. Goes to the bank, says, foreclose on me. I take it, I, I can't meet my payments. Well, the the banks did not want worthless real estate on their books. They knew he was going to try to pay them when he could. And so they said no. And so he had to figure out how to generate income.
1: He's 50 years old and basically has to start all over. This time he's more decisive. He starts a grocery store.
2: It's the only business where If you fail, at least you can eat the inventory.
1: (laughs) And it was a family affair. And for one acquaintance, it was all too much of a family affair. With Fred recalling, I remember one time when Bill Gordon told my dad, you're working those kids too hard. And my dad came home to me and asked, am I working you too hard? Now, I never went to a baseball game, or a basketball game, or a football game, all through high school at 3 o'clock I got out of school and by 3 30 I was in the store but I never thought my dad worked me too hard I probably put in 40 hours a week all through high school but I enjoyed it Hendrik Meyer desperately needed the 14 year old Fred's help to make it all work but he also wanted it
2: I think it grew initially out of my grandfather always had a heavy Dutch accent and so with with his his son, growing up American as a teenager, sometimes would almost find himself speaking for his folks. And so, uh, as my grandfather is going from the the more cozy confines of the barber shop and having to go out and, and negotiate with vendors and suppliers to stock the store and that sort of thing, he's relying on my dad to help him with a lot of that. There, there was a great trust there. My grandfather was treating my dad as a partner while he was still a teenager. It wasn't this sort of, well, we'll wait and see, son, and someday, maybe. It was, let's go do this.
3: The guy said, my wife doesn't want these Sunnyfield Rice Krispies. They had Kellogg's, that was the brand, and Sunnyfield was a private brand. The Sunnyfield probably sold for a dime, and the Kellogg probably two for a quarter. So he bought the dime one, but she didn't want that. She told her husband, "I he got it at the Meyers, and I'd like get your money back." So I started to say to the customer, "Well, we didn't sell it to you." Says, "Rather, well, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company." My dad says, "Shut up, Fred. Give him the money. We can eat it," and which we did. I mean, uh, it was cheaper than we could buy Kellogg's Wholesale. We didn't have a private brand. And, but don't send them, the message don't send them to a competitor for 10 cents. So I got that message loudly and clearly.
0: Fatherly lessons and a father-son team that would lead their Meyer enterprise from a 21 by 70 foot grocery store to 230 stores Throughout the Midwest And over 70,000 employees More of this terrific story You won't believe what happens next On this day in history Fred Meyer Of Meyer Supercenters and Grocery Stores Was born This is Our American Stories Our American stories to stay in history. In 1919, Fred Meyer was born. And for the hour, his life story. And again, he helped his father, Hendrick, start a small Michigan grocery store and grow it into something much bigger 230 super centers and grocery stores throughout the Midwest. Stores that Fred saw as a service to the community, starting with helping families make ends meet by having the lowest prices. One time, when Fred discovered that another grocery was selling chocolate-covered strawberries for one cent less, he had Meyer's beautiful display for them taken down and completely redone, all to make a one-cent reduction. Some of his colleagues thought he was nuts, but in 1997, consumer reports confirmed that he wasn't. They collected 22,000 consumer responses about the 35 biggest grocery companies, and Meyer received the highest rating for food prices, a brand integrity that led to some unusual questions, like when Daryl Shoemaker went to report high profits for his food division, and he was feeling great about it, but didn't see Fred's question coming. Were profits high because our prices were too high? Should we run some hotter specials? Fred was a smart and customer-focused businessman, but he was so much more than that, too. (laughs)
1: Perhaps more than anything, especially in those early days when nothing was certain, the Meyer business was built on Fred's love for people.
4: I heard it from him a million times and it had a huge impact on me, but he always treated people with dignity and respect. They always talked about
1: dignity and respect and treat people with a dignity and respect. Joe McCormick started out in the mailroom and as Fred's driver, and one day they talked about his upcoming meeting with former President Gerald Ford.
4: I asked him, now that he's out of office, how do you address him? Do you call him Mr. President, or do you call him Jerry? And Fred paused, and he said, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. I better find out. And that was the end of the conversation. Well, probably a week later, he came in, and I'm at the big table sorting mail, and he walks up to me, and he throws this envelope across the table, and he said, that's for you. And when I opened it up, it was a little piece of paper that said, to Joe, best wishes, Gerald Ford. And as I was opening it, I looked across at him, and he just had this, this giggle his laugh on his face because he just got the biggest kick out of it and for me you know i mean i was a young man in the mailroom the fact that fred meyer brought up the subject of his driver asking the question
1: and it wasn't the only time gerald ford played a part fred had lined up for him here's former store director rick zeef I remember it
5: distinctly. We were walking through meat and seafood department and he was paged on the overhead system, which was a little unusual, but you know, they track him down once in a while. They pretty much knew where Fred was uh, every moment of the day. So he said, oh, I've been waiting for a call. Uh, where's their phone? And I said, right there behind the seafood counter. So he went back there and grabbed a company phone and was talking for several minutes, and I look over at him, he's motioning to me, and I walked over. I said, yep, and he said, here, and he hands me the phone. He said, somebody wants to talk to you, which, that was a little unusual, but eh. I take the phone, what am I gonna do, say no? And uh, so he hands me the phone, and I say, hi, this is Rick. And on the other end was uh, former President Gerald Ford. And all he said, he chuckled and said, Hi Rick, this is President Ford. You've got quite a boss there. And, <laughs> and I laughed back at him and I said, yes, Mr. President, I do. I, 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 he didn't tell me. He said, well, he wanted to surprise you and he figured you probably hadn't spoken to a former president before.
1: And then there's all the people Fred loved who he didn't even know. And he was especially happy when they didn't know him.
4: When we would go to the stores, I always got a kick out of this. We'd always park in the furthest parking spot in the parking lot because we wanted the customers to have the spaces closest to the store. And as he would walk into the store, he'd pick up pieces of paper.
1: Garbage, something he, the owner, would pick up until he died, even from his wheelchair.
4: Well, one winter day, and we were at one of the Ypsilanti stores, and it was a cold winter day, and the parking lot was a little snowy, icy, but the parking lot had these big drainage covers that would drain the excess water off. Well, these young kids, it's like 1030 in the morning and these young, I mean, it's school, it's, it's school time. And there's a carload of these young kids. And as they were backing out of their parking spot, they got stuck in that hole. So Elf, uh, Fred, he throws an elbow at me and he says, come on, let's go help push these guys out. So we walk down to that area, and we start pushing on the car and rocking it. And, you know, these kids thought that was really cool. You could hear them talking amongst themselves. And as we were walking away, I said to Fred, why don't you tell him who you were? And he just kind of chuckled. He says, nah, but Fred always carried these Purple Cow ice cream passes.
1: Fred's Purple Cow card gets you a complimentary ice cream at a Meyer store
4: and he handed me a handful, and he says, just go back and give those kids an ice cream cone. So I got the privilege of going back and watching the jaws drop to these kids, because I actually happened to catch them before they left. And I handed them each a card to get a free ice cream cone. And they got the biggest kick out of that, and I was able to tell them who just pushed them out of the
1: hole. You know, they couldn't believe it. It's estimated that Fred and his wife, Lena, Gave away 500,000 Purple Cow cards to kids and to presidents.
4: Never gave a Purple Cow pass to anybody who took it and was angry. They're always happy to get it.
1: Except for one person, as Peter Secchia remembers.
4: Fred came to a, a summer
6: dinner barbecue at my Lake Michigan home. One year, and he and Lena were at a table with George Perlis, who happened to be the former head football coach at Michigan State, and he had Henry Buller with him, who was a defensive coordinator at Michigan State, but he had coached the Buffalo Bills before that. He was a He was a head coach, and he had coached at the Lions. He was known in the NFL as Dr. D, Dr. Defense. So Hank Ball is a big guy, fun, loving guy, beer-drinking, cigar-smoking when his wife isn't around kind of guy, and George is popping down his scotches. And Fred is at their table, I never met Fred, and it's like hero worship. Fred doesn't know the difference between a head football coach and the tennis game going on down the street. But George and Hank both Fred Myers at our table. So Fred, as it starts to get dark at the table, Fred stands up, takes out his money clip, and takes some triple cow cards out. And he hands them to these guys. And he gives them each two or three of them. And uh, they get them, and they say, Thank you, Fred. He says, Just stop in my store and get one of these. You'll have a good time. They don't know it's a purple cow gift. They don't know it's an ice cream cone. But they get it, and they can't read it because it's getting dark out of my deck. And then a little bit later on, people are getting up to go home, and Hank Bullock comes out of the bathroom, and he's, like, ready to cry. He said, I couldn't wait to get in and turn the light on and read what we got. I thought maybe it was a television set. <laughs> oh shortwave radio and a goddamn ice cream cone.
1: <laughs> but for a simple man like Fred Meyer, a good ice cream cone is all you need.
7: He treated
4: everybody the same, and that's what was so much fun about being with Fred.
0: And it turns out, Fred Meyer even treated himself, the owner of the business, the same as everyone else. On Sundays, Fred would often ride his bike four miles to the nearest Meyer store to pick up a few things. One time, after he had done his shopping, he realized that he had left his wallet at home. Rather than tell the manager he would pay later, he rode his bike all the way home and back to pay for his groceries. That is a unique character, folks. And as so many of the great entrepreneurs in this country and their families are, they are unique stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is one heck of a story. The life of Fred Meyer, born on this day in history in 1919, brought to us as always by the great folks at Hillsdale College. They're in Michigan, too. More after these messages. our American stories, and we're back with our hour-long celebration of Fred Meyer's life on his birthday, born on this day in history in 1919. And this great American business story from one tiny store to 230 super centers and grocery stores throughout the Midwest. This great father-son story. This great love story. Fred's love for everyone. Their love for him. A customer was once at a convention in California, and a man was telling her about his travels to the Eiffel Tower, the Great Wall of China, etc., to which the lady asked, Have you ever been in a Meyer store? No, I haven't, he responded. I'd say we're even, she said. Now let's return to our celebration. He was a master of blending.
1: Blending with every type of person in society. But blending wasn't something he needed to master. It's who he was. Here's the former editor of the Grand Rapids Press, Mike Lloyd. Way before
7: Meyer was a big deal with all these stores, and they, they just had a few, maybe four or five in the Grand Rapids area. But Grand Rapids was not um, it was not segregated in the sense of a deep southern town, but it was de facto segregated. Blacks had one area of town they were supposed to live in, and that was it. And there was a group of college-educated, professional blacks. I would say maybe 20 or to 30, and they were they were going to attempt to put a housing development on the north side. And they were running into a lot of resistance. That resistance pretty much went away when Fred Meyer put money into the project. Just slam dam. in Auburn Hills on the north end of Grand Rapids. That Legacy community is still there, a pocket that was developed because someone of Fred's stature stood behind them. And in
1: 1952, segregation hit even closer to home for Fred. There was an opening at his main office for a receptionist, and one of the executives said there was someone he wanted to hire, but there was a problem. She's black, and some of the employees were already talking about separate bathrooms. Fred said he'd handle it, and talked with the employees, about 30 in all one at a time. He asked them what they thought about her potential hire. Some said, I don't care, but others might not like it. And Fred told them, I'll put you down as you don't care then. I'll be asking the others so you don't have to speak for them. No one was willing to admit that they didn't want to work with a black person. We hired her and she did a great job. Breaking the color barrier at Meyer two years before the Supreme Court declared segregation unconstitutional. Fred even blended with those who had broken his trust, when he had zero obligation to.
4: Fred called me into his office, and I'd never been in his office before. I mean, I'd always waited outside his office, so as I walked in his office, I was just, you know, a little bit intimidated. And he told me to sit down across from the desk, and I sat down, and he's going through his mail. And he gets this, he sees this envelope. And he throws it across his desk. He says, open that one up for me and read it to me. And I'm like, really? I I didn't even know what it was. It was a letter from a, a man. His name was... And was a buyer for Meyer. And got into a situation where they had to let
1: him go. He had stolen from the company.
4: And I don't know if the letter was a bit of an apology letter and then a little bit of an update of, you know, the fact that he was in a nursing home. And so uh, Fred found out where the nursing home was. And I want to say for a good month, and I think maybe it might have passed, Within that time frame, whenever we were in that area, in the Detroit area, we always did a side trip and we would go to the nursing home to visit. And he would go into this nursing home and walk down to the room. I'd go with him and we'd sit down and they would just chit chat about the old times. And I can't tell you how appreciative was because every time we went there, the guy would just glean.
1: Jack McCarthy remembers attending his very first meeting about preventing theft, and Fred came in with an unforgettable message. Most people who steal are not bad. They have only made a bad decision. We have all made bad decisions, and in some cases, people steal. But because most of them are good people, they deserve to be treated with respect. But As I look back over all those years, I don't know a person I did this like.
2: People are wonderful. Excuse me.
1: They tell me I'll get these Jags with a headbang, but people are really wonderful. This was Fred when he was more than a grown man, in his 80s, and he's crying about his love for people. He's crying because the richness it's given his life, and as a byproduct, a rich business. Not that he would benefit much from it, as Amway co-founder Rich DeVos recalls. Fred was a, a wealthy man who acted like a poor man. Here's former Meyer employee Guy Estep.
8: My wife and I were shopping uh, one time in uh, number 11. That's the one on 28th and Kalamazoo. And uh, we were uh, standing there, and I got a tap on my shoulder and turned around, and there's Fred, and he says, Guy, he says, can you help me? And uh, I said, sure, Fred. I thought, you know, maybe it was a... 50-pound block of salt or something he wanted me to lift for him. And uh, he takes me over to the the aisle that had the hand soap, and he says, I have a coupon here for 10 cents off, and I can't find this bar of soap. I mean, he owns the store, he owns the whole shelf, and he had a 10-cent coupon he wanted to use.
1: A billionaire out to save 10 cents. But Fred would insist that he wasn't a billionaire he would be if he sold the company but he didn't Kmart and Walmart wanted to buy them but Fred wasn't interested ignoring Sam Walton's phone calls four times Fred knew the best shot to ensure Meyer would best serve their communities was by keeping it in the family his personal bank account might have suffered for it but it was never about him so he needed to save that 10 cents or at least thought it would be silly not to save 10 cents. As Peter Secchia recalls when he served as ambassador to Italy.
6: We got the word that Fred and Lena Meyer were going to be in Rome for business, and that they wanted to come out and say hello, and I offered to go a lunch for them. That the people of the merchandisers who had stores would love meeting Fred and Lena. And I'll be darned if during the lunch... And Fred stands up and says, you know, they like my watch at the table. Some of the Italian gentlemen said, that's a nice looking watch, Fred. Is that from your store? And Fred said, yeah, I paid $8.95 for this watch. And these Italians in their $300 suits and their uh, jewelry looked at Fred like he's cragging about that. And Fred went on to say, these watches, we move a lot of them. And people love them. They work well. Aren't they nice? And Lena stands up at her table and says, well, Fred paid eight ninety five 95 for his, but I waited till they were on sale, and I bought mine for five ninety five. The crowd went crazy. So that was just Fred and Lena. They were proud of what they did and how they did it. And their old logo used to be, why pay more? And that's what Lena was saying, why pay more?
0: In the terrific biography Fred Meyer's stories of his life, Fred's neighbor Bob Hamilton recalled, We always had a key to Fred and Lena's house in case something happened while they were gone. One time, their alarm went off and I went over there. After the police determined it was a false alarm, one of the officers said to me, The people living here spell their name the same way as the ones who own those stores. (laughs) I told him they were one and the same. Surprised, he declared, they live in this neighborhood? (laughs) I tried not to laugh, and I asked, what's wrong with this neighborhood? I live here. He was embarrassed because he had assumed, like most people, that Fred and Lena lived in a big house in an affluent suburb or a gated community. This is Lee Habib, Fred Meyer, born in this day in history in 1919. A heck of a business story, a heck of a father-son story, a heck of an American story here on our American stories. our American stories and we're back with the final portion of our hour-long birthday celebration of the life of Fred Meyer, born on this day in history in 1919 and who helped his father Hendrick start a small Michigan grocery store and grow it into something much bigger. But it was far from easy or a certain future. Their first store burnt to the ground and they once wrote a check to a supplier for an amount that they didn't have in their bank account praying that weekend sales would be high and that the four-day circuit the check had made to would make it long enough. But that's not all that happened. Let's return to our celebration for the rest of the story. And in
1: 1962, the business would be at risk again. But this time, they consciously decided to put it at risk, as Hank Meyer recalls.
2: My grandfather was 78 years old. He had a heart attack a decade before. He was still going into the office every day But my, and sharing an office with my dad. But it was my dad's energy, who, who was now in his uh, 40s, who, that was really driving the business. And my dad came to him and said, you know, what if we apply the techniques of the supermarket to selling other products? That means cash and carry and self-service and great abundance. What if we apply combine that with the supermarket? And by golly, if we're gonna operate both parts, we can have one set of checkouts for those and and create this mammoth new again, what we call today a supercenter. And my grandfather said, geez, I don't know. And my he was a little hesitant. I mean, this is the family's fortune that's being gambled with and he's in his late seventies. And my dad said, well, what would you do if you were my age? And my grandfather said, I'd jump in with both feet. And that was all my dad needed to hear. And and they were off uh, on a whole new adventure.
1: And an adventure it was, losing $400,000 their very first month. And a fire would rock them again. To get the money Meyer needed to stay afloat, Fred and his wife Lena had to personally endorse loans. If they failed... They could have lost everything. Fast forward decades later.
8: I remember one time my wife and I were in Florida, and uh, we went to a Walmart to, you know, get some stuff, and. Uh, my wife said, well, I wonder where this is. And I said, it's over there. And she said, well, I wonder where this is. And I said, it's over there. And she said, how do you know that? I said, you're, in, you're exactly in a Meijer. I mean, they used to send people in our stores with notebooks and pencils and jot down everything that Meyer was doing. And that's how Walmart built their first stores.
1: So even if there's not a Meijer in your area, they've revolutionized your shopping experience, bringing all of us one-stop shopping through their imitators walmart and kmart would copy their supercenter concept 26 years later and target 34 years later walmart's founder sam walton attributed his success to learning from others saying most everything i've done i've copied from someone else and as for fred he said i'll accept credit for being a pioneer as long as everyone understands that being a pioneer is simply having the courage to learn as you go and Fred would keep going and learning until his death his lawyer Rob Verhulen remembers being on a trip with him when Fred was in his eighties they were on an acquisition trip for his signature piece of philanthropy the Frederick Meyer Gardens and Sculpture Park one of the top 100 most visited art museums in the world benefiting over 650,000 visitors annually and rob was looking forward to a night in at the hotel after a long scorching hot day
7: the air conditioning was just oh incredible i just took off my shoes got on the bed and was relaxing well 10 minutes later i get a phone call from fred he said well let's go out and visit stores so so we were hitting all of the grocery stores in 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 that area and Fred with his little notebook was making notes and he'd approach someone and say, well, how does this sell and why did you display it this way or that way? And it was just amazing.
1: And it all started with his father. Fred could never go for an hour of talking without mentioning his father. And it was his father who inspired him to tell two stories during one of Meyer's management meetings around the tense period of performance reviews. Here's Joe McCormick.
4: He told a story about when he was a young kid and in Greenville, and he kind of staged the story to describe his father as a bit of a gruffian if he got upset you know he had he had quite a bark on him, and Fred went to the store in Greenville with the horse and carriage that's how long ago it was to pick up supplies for the farm and the post that you tie the horse up to, he didn't tie that horse up tight enough. And with a loaded wagon, something spooked that horse. And he said that horse took off hightailing it back to the farm. And as a young kid, he was chasing behind it after the horse, calling for the horse to stop. And that horse kept on going. And as it went back to the farm, the wagon was all the supplies fell out of the wagon. The wagon basically fell apart. There was not much left to the wagon. Well, as the horse was coming up to the farmhouse, his father came running out of the house. And of course, Fred, running on foot, chasing after the horse, was running up the driveway. And. When he saw his dad, he thought, boy, he was going to get it. This is something his dad was really going to let him have it. Well, as he ran up to his father, his father was, you know, in a very worried tone of voice asking him, Fred, Fred, are you okay? Are you okay? And, you know, just grabbed him and hugged him. And, you know, Fred felt sorry about the wagon, but his father was okay just as long as he was okay. Now, when he told that story... Every woman in that meeting room, and there was a lot of women that were part of the management team. You could hear a, 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 a unified. Uh, I mean, he had their. I mean, he had their attention. Okay, and it really touched him. And you know, when he was telling the story, he kind of broke up a little bit because it was a, it was a memory of his father. And so when I'm listening to the story, I thought, wow, that was a that was a cool story. I'd never heard that one. At the end of these meetings, they would ask the management, oh, everybody in the room, you had a little white card, and if you had a question about anything that was presented at the meeting, you could write your question down and hand it in, and then they would pick a couple questions to, to ask whoever it was addressed to. Well... One of the cards said, Fred, can you tell another story? And he, and he was telling these stories from the seat he was sitting in, in the front. And he stands up and his back's to me and he says, and he's got the microphone. He says, I got a story. I do have another story for you. And he started to talk about the young man that worked at Meyer that drove him. And it was a a winter holiday night. And he ran into the back of some people's car and popped up their trunk and did all kinds of havoc to the car. And we found out that they were shopping at Kmart. And I had to just let him know that he had no reason to hit them or run them over because they were shopping at Kmart. And then after he says that, he goes, I've I've got that story right, don't I, Joe? And when he said that, I go, yeah, Fred, you got the story right. And I think about 600 faces all looked at me at once and started just roaring. Well, after the meeting, I approached him, and I thanked him for telling the story because think what he was trying to tell his management team is that, you know, people make mistakes and it and it's okay that people make mistakes as long as they learn by them. And I, I, I know Fred knew that what people were going through with the performance appraisals and all of that stuff going down. And he happens at that particular time to tell two stories about two individuals that made an error, but, you know, was forgiven for their errors you know because because
3: you learn from it
1: a lesson he learned from his father when that horse got away from him
3: all my dad said are are you okay and then i realized i i I didn't even realize i didn't realize till 30 years later i was more important than the horse and the wagon and the loss of money well the same thing is true every day in our stores people are more important so that's if, if, if you can put people first, people will put us first. Basically, every job in our store, if it's done right, is a teaching job. You're teaching somebody else how to do their job or how to deal with the public.
1: Teaching thousands what one man taught him.
0: I want to close with something from Doug Meyer, the grandson of Hendrik Meyer and the son of Fred. In the biography Fred Meyer, Stories of His Life, Doug reflected, quote, Our grandpa and grandma Meyer lived a few houses from us. Grandpa, being a former barber, always cut our hair every other Sunday afternoon. Afterwards, grandma Meyer would give us ice cream, so we usually look forward to haircut time. Grandpa had just cut our hair the Sunday he passed away. Our dad took it very hard, as he and grandpa were so close for so many years. It was one of the few times I saw him cry. The life of Fred Meyer, born on this day in history in 1919, always brought to us by Hillsdale College. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
9: In the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. Facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American
0: people, in their righteous might, will win through to absolute victory. This is our American Stories. On this day in history, just before 8 a.m., hundreds of Japanese fighter planes attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor near Honolulu, Hawaii. Hawaii was not yet a state. The barrage lasted just two hours, but it was devastating. The Japanese managed to destroy nearly 20 American naval vessels, including eight enormous battleships. And more than 300 airplanes. More than 2,000 American soldiers and sailors died in the attack. Another 1,000 were wounded. We all know that famous speech given by President Roosevelt following the attacks. It's an important part of our history. Indeed, some historians have said this is when America became a grown up nation and went from being isolationist to a global superpower. Just as important, though, besides the geopolitical stories, are the stories of the brave men who were on the ground and in the water that day. We don't hear those stories enough. Stories from a generation of men whose voices will only live on when we take the time to listen to them. And so many of them, by the way, are dying off. And that's exactly what we're doing today for the hour. We'll also listen to more of Roosevelt's remarkable speech. By the way, on that day that he delivered the speech, he leaned on his son and then leaned on a cane. And as you all may or may not know, he suffered from polio. But on this night, he wanted to walk up to the joint session of Congress and show them he could walk. And he did. And so we'll get to that speech later, too, because what a speech it was and what a moment. A rallying cry for the American people. But first up, we want to talk about John Anderson, who enlisted in the Navy on March 16, 1937. From Minneapolis, Minnesota, he reported on board the USS Arizona December 6, 1940, just one year before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Here he describes his day of December 7, 1941. He was a mere 24 years old and was stationed along with his twin brother, Jake. When I awoke on the morning of December
10: 7th, I had the duty in a 4th Division. And the Division was uh, clean up any uh, activity that we had going and to arrange the uh, uh, ceremonies for our church on the fantail of the ship. So I took my uh, working party and we commits to do all this sort of thing. And we were a little late getting into the uh, mess hall for breakfast. So we got this straightened out, and uh, we went inside to eat. And about the time I got inside to get a chance to eat something, I heard a loud explosion. And I thought, what in the dickens is that? And then one of the mess cooks looked out the porthole and saw the explosion and called me, and he said, Andy, you were in China just recently. Really? Yes. Well, you know what it was? Did you see that? And I said, no. He said, get out and take a look. So I went outside the hatch onto the main quarter deck, looked up and saw this plane with, dipping like this, and it had red balls on its wings. And I said, I did said a cuss word, and I said, the Japanese are here. We already knew this was going to happen sometime,
0: but they're here. Here's what happened next to Mr. Anderson as bombs were beginning to drop all around him. And so I
10: ran back toward the hatch door to pull the general alarm. And by the time I got to pull it, which I never did, a bomb dropped between us and the Vestal. And it blew me inside the hatch, knocked me silly. And I, uh, of course, you know, that set off a wildfire. And of course, the Japanese were then machine gunning the decks, spraying the decks with machine gun fire. Then uh, more bombs began to drop around us. And, of course, we immediately did what we were supposed to do, go to our general quarter station. So I got up off the deck, went down to the lower hatches and back up into the barbed of number four turret because I was a gunner on my battle station in number four turret. And I got into the seat and said, manned and ready. In the meantime, I told told the turret captain... uh, uh, Campbell, I said, look, what I saw out there was a number of Japanese planes. I didn't see any ships or anything, and no shell fire. There's all bombs and machine gun fire. And he said, well, what do you suggest? And I said, well, we can't do any good in here. We need some gunners on the anti-aircraft batteries. And if those guys are dead, who's going to defend us with from those planes up there? And he says, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I'd like to get out there and get on a gun with my brother. He's an anti-aircraft gun, Captain and he needs help
0: and he said go for it so I said okay go for it not waiting for the order stepping up John Anderson his life will continue with his story of one of the most tragic days in American history Pearl Harbor more after these messages This is our American Stories. Pearl Harbor. We wanted to take you there through men who were there. John Anderson on the USS Arizona. And we leave off with him in the last segment saying, let's, let's do it. Let's go. Or as our hero on flight 93 said, let's roll. That's the American spirit. Anderson sprang into action before things took a turn for the worse.
10: So I talked to a couple of other guys that was in there with me, Hall Otterman and Dwayne Barth and the full name Lewis, several other guys. I said, I'm going out the trap door, and I'm going up there and get on the guns. If you guys want to stay here, you can do that, and man this turret. If we if they, if they start shelling us, I'll come back. So you, I won't be gone that long. So I got out of the turret, went out from the under, overhang of the turret, and started up the ladder to the boat deck where all the anti guns were. Well, I got to the top of the ladder and an enormous explosion occurred and people uh, were just blown all over the place. There was all kinds of body parts, different... Uh, uh, Newton, there was nothing I could do to do anything, and a tremendous fire broke out. And then explosions of our artillery that, uh, that was up to the, our, uh, uh, ammunition started blowing. And it knocked me back about back to as far as number four turret, and on the way back, I grabbed a guy, but the hand was on fire, and I held on to him. And he was from Greenfield, Ohio. I never forgot that, and I, I saved him. I got him out of there, but he was on fire. I got the fire out, and then of course there's nothing I could do because everybody was trying to salvage somebody or get him off where they were free and clear. But nobody was free and clear. And some small craft were around us, but they didn't venture too close. But one of them did. And uh, Admiral Fuqua, who was the senior surviving officer there on board, was yelling at me to get in one of those boats when I was dumping guys, wounded people that I could find uh, who were still in one piece into the boat to take them ashore to the bunker over there on Fort Island. And uh, he yelling at me to get off. And I said, Mike, I'm not leaving. My brother's there someplace. i got to find him. i got to find him. And he says, he can't make it. He couldn't have made it. You just get in there. He said, this place is going to blow. That magazine under you was almost hit by
0: one. And he said, it's not going to go. He says, get out of here. But I wouldn't go. Not wanting to leave his twin brother, Jake, or the other men behind, John Anderson was ordered to evacuate the area just after a bomb hit his ship. In the
10: meantime, one of the bombs hit the turret that we had been in, <laughs> and it skidded off the faceplate, which is about 16-inch steel, the faceplate, and went down below and exploded below and killed members of the uh, CIC, Combat Information Center. But we weren't there at the time. We were looking or a different spot on the ship there. And uh, so finally uh, I got over there to the uh, uh, starboard uh, quarter, which is the right hand corner of the ship where that small boat had got in. And a fellow named uh, Alexander was a pilot of this small craft, which I didn't think I'd ever forget, and I didn't this time. And Alexander said, come on, give me the guy, give me the guy. As he, he did, And I said, no. He said, I said, you got any more? And he said, yes. He said, well, get him in here let him get him on. In the meantime, Dr. Admiral Fuquay, who was the Lieutenant Commander at that time, Came over to me and he says, You got to get in the boat. We want to save as many men as we can. Get in there. I said, Well, I'm not going. He says, Yes, you are. And he shoved me in with a loaded uh, wounded man in my hands. So I got in the boat, whether I we wanted to or not, and they took off for Fort Island. I got to Fort Island. We unloaded the dead and uh, wounded. Oh, some flatbed trucks that came down there to get them. And then uh, I stood outside the bunker and I looked out there at the Arizona and I said, it's still on fire, but maybe we can get back and do something. And there's a small craft floating by itself, nobody in it. And I turned around and saw this kid standing next to me and I said, uh, Rose, are you ready to drive out back out there and go at it again? He says, if
0: you are, I am. Anderson and Rose then made their way back to the Arizona. Here again is John Anderson with the heroism an ultimate tragedy that would next unfold. So we swam out, got in that boat, which was just
10: adrift of the Arizona stern, and drove back up alongside the port quarter of the Arizona, that's the left side. And I climbed aboard, and he held us alongside, and we did rescue three guys. I, I, you know, there were a lot. We so many dead ones that I couldn't tell. In the time that I had, I couldn't have... And other guys were trying to do the same thing, but they must have gone by the time we got back. And uh, I I had to take what we could get. So we took these three guys and uh, tried to make sure they were okay. And we drove on down. I was a pilot of this uh, uh, small craft, drove on down down past the Oklahoma and the West Virginia. And we got down to the seaplane ramp and a shell or something hit our boat. And uh, it could have been an explosive machine gun fire, explosive explosive bullets. Anyway, it blew their boat apart and lost those three guys and rose. And I was the only one who lived alive in that.
0: The four men he was with, they were all dead. Mr. Anderson then swam back to the beach where he found something interesting.
10: So I managed to make it ashore and just fell down on the ground there on the beach. And then Japanese were still running back and forth. A new new batch of them from up there came in. It's my like second wave, I think. But anyway, they peppered the beach with machine gun fire. And of course, I had to get off the beach before I got hit myself again. And uh, I ran up to the runway, which is on Fort Island, not too far from the beach. And there was a tree and several trees there. And one of them had a 19.3 Springfield rifle and two bandoliers of ammunition hanging over them. I said, my God, this is my serious, this is what's saving me. I've got myself a rifle and two bandoliers of ammunition and that's about 215 rounds and I'm going to be able to do some good. (laughs) I took off down the runway and found a bomb hole in the runway and parked there. And uh, got in there and of course, for some reason or other, they didn't come back and bomb us again. They were down there blowing up the planes a little further away from us. Anyway, this other fellow come on. He was in Marine uniform, dress uniform, and he looked at me and he said, Hey, Andy, what are you doing there? And I said, Well, I'm, that's where I'm going to make my
0: stand. He says, Well, I've got a machine gun. We can get in hell. Anderson and that Marine would hunker down for the night before they moved out the following morning. Anderson didn't learn what happened to his twin brother, for some time. I didn't know what happened to my brother.
10: I was out in the Pacific and found out that there was a, a gunner that was on the boat deck who had charge of all those guns up there. And my brother was under his command. And he said that he saw, he, had, he put out a, a brief that he saw Anderson knocked down by gunfire. He was a gun captain on a gun. And then when the explosion occurred, he, the gunner got blown overboard. So he didn't know what happened other than most of the people up there were burned to death or blown to pieces. So uh, I, I, they never did find my brother's body. But the, the last I know about is what this gunner had to say later. And the gunner, of course, was killed After he'd done this, uh, against the uh, kamikazes off the the sea of Okinawa when the kamikazes were coming in on the Pacific Fleet units, Uh, Gunner was out there and was killed there. So that was the last I ever, anybody ever had on my boiler.
0: John Anderson passed away in November of 2015 in Roswell, New Mexico, At the age of 98, after his remains were cremated, a Navy SEAL took the ashes underwater and placed them next to his brother Jake's final resting spot at the sunken USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor. Of the 1,512 men on board that ship, 1,177 died There were 38 sets of brothers. 23 of them died. One father and son died. If you ever get a chance, visit that sunken battleship. If you ever get a chance, visit a battleship. The immensity of them. The Arizona was 608 feet long. And again... 1,177 died on this day in history in 1941. More on Pearl Harbor. This is Our American Stories. American stories and on this day in history Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese 2,403 American Navy men and women were killed one of the worst days in American history and we're telling the stories through two survivors and up next Glenn Lane's story. He was an airman on the deck launched seaplane aboard the USS Arizona. Here's his account of flying into Pearl Harbor on December 5th.
11: We were coming in on Friday, December 5th. The other, the other force ain't coming out, so we're flying in because uh, we always flew in when they. When they uh, catapult and then we'd fly in and uh, either land at Fort Island or somewhere when the ship was in the harbor anyway the other force wasn't coming out and I asked the senior I said, hey what's the matter with the other battle force they're not coming out he says, well they've decided to leave them all in the harbor and send out the the, the faster cruiser scouting force and I said well why he said well if we go to war which he says things are touch and go. They figure the only thing that'll happen here is if some hit and run raids at night by shelling from submarines, and they can't hurt the wagons inside. But out here, uh, we're not fast enough to outrun. Them. So that's the, the thinking of putting them inside. Well, it satisfied me. We put our airplanes over on Fort Island. We beached them over there, and uh, and then went back aboard the ship to. And we would have been coming over to operate Fort Allen the next week, but uh, we, there was no next week as far as as, far as uh, Arizona went.
0: There was no next week. Here's Glenn Lane describing what was going on leading up to the attack on Pearl Harbor, when they started to hear explosions.
11: We were parked where the where the memorial is right now, and uh, everything was pretty normal except the. Um, Vestal of repair ship was alongside of us because we needed some work on our evaporators and some other stuff and we were to let our fires die down and take our power from the vessel and uh, start Monday morning we were supposed to be working on the ship and then we went on Liberty Saturday and uh, well the next day we got hit it was right after breakfast. It uh, was just, just for 8 o'clock. And I bought some Christmas cards the day before, and we were going to, several of us, and we were going to go down into one of our storerooms, way down the bottom of the ship, where nobody bothers we were going to write Christmas cards and send Christmas cards and get them ready to send. And uh, I got to go get a bath first, so I with a lock, put a bath towel around my neck and had my toilet gear in my hand, going to get a bath. And then I still heard these... Explosions, on what's going on? Said, uh, they're they're blasting on Fort Island. Somebody said, I said, uh uh-uh. that they don't. They were building a lot of construction over but They don't work on Sundays. I said somebody. Probably, well, there's a lot of bombs laying around on the higher deck over there, and depth charges and stuff because they were putting depth charges on those PBYS. There a possible chance to go out and, and attack those subs. And I said they, and they had these depth charges to look like. The old ash cans off of, off a of destroyer, but they had them fixed so they could hook them on the on the uh, PBYs. I said, uh, "Some idiot probably kicked one of them fuses over there and blew a hanger up, I said, so they didn't get our airplane, See,
0: Glenn and the other airmen went to see what was going on, not realizing yet that it was an attack.
11: So we went up topside, which was one deck up with the forecastle, and over Fort Island, big fires. And lots of smoke, and uh, and you see an airplane or two flying around up there. And it still didn't ring a bell, because uh, we see airplanes flying all the time. But uh, then we turned around, and looked up the harbor, and here comes, we saw a couple airplanes. One of them, I said, oh, the army's out earlier today, on Sunday, and then I saw that torpedo plane carrying a torpedo. And I said, hey, uh, two guys with me, see. And the Army ain't got no torpedo planes. That, tor- that plane's got a fish under it. And just then they dropped the torpedo, and I think it hit the Oklahoma, uh, two ships ahead of us. But then they swung over, and they come back over the Arizona, past the West Virginia, and they're strafing. So you could see the old guns winking at you. I get down. So we got down, and they missed us by about three feet across the Teakwood deck with four or five shots.
0: Next, Glenn Lane would defy a direct order by heading to a battle station, a move that would ultimately save his life. Here's Glenn with what he saw when the Arizona was hit.
11: I said to them two guys ahead of me, I said, hey, come on back up here. We got a, we got a battle station on the, on the quarter deck. It was General Quarters. So I turn around, come back up. There was a Marine lieutenant down there, and he says, at the top of that ladder, he says, get back down there. I said... I'm going to my battle station and he said get back down and there won't be any panic on this ship i said i'm not panicking i'm going to my battle station well i just went to my battle station and well i guess i moved him out of the way but the other two guys were in front of me uh, going down the ladder they didn't get back up so they're still out there the bomb had hit the face of number four turret and glanced off and went down through the quarter deck and the fire was down uh, the deck below, but it looked like a blowtorch coming out of the coming out of the of the, of the hole with the bomb went in. We were out there, trying to get that that fire going, uh, fire apparatus going. Yelling at the guy, get us some pressure, and he said, I'm on the phones trying to get him. Nobody answers. So, well, we got just a few drops coming out of that stupid hose, and then we got hit four or five more times. I don't know. Every time we get hit, it seemed like it would knock us down, and then we get back up again, and start operate again, and then we hit it again, and I'd say four or five times it got hit, because I was on my hands and knees several times, and we got that big bomb down that uh, blew the forward magazines, and when the forward magazines blew, uh, you could feel the ship just raise out of the water like that, see, just like a buck and bronco, and, and then that big fireball come rolling back, and I dropped my, my nozzle. And I remember this. Well, I still have my towel wrapped around my neck, see? Because I didn't want to lose my towel. I put a knot in it. I had a big old bath towel around my neck. And I, I, and I didn't have a hat on. I ducked my head in my arms. I turned my back real quick as I could. And, and that concussion and, and fireball hit just like, Syria. serious. I didn't feel anything until I was in the water. And I mean, I was down in the water deep. And I fought to get to the surface. And, uh, I saw that I could still see and I looked I looked back at the ship I'm out there in the water maybe 20, 30 feet off the ship I looked back up and I couldn't see a living person on the ship not one of course you didn't have very good perspective because the ship's up here and you're down here so I couldn't see anybody I'm not going back aboard because there's no use
0: We're listening to Glenn Lane he's recounting his experience in Hawaii on December 7, 1941. And that's what we like to do here in our American stories. Bring you the stories from the people, get out of the way, and you just get to hear their voices directly. We heard from Mr. Anderson before. He had passed away, and his ashes were laid to rest next to his brother Jake. At the memorial that is now the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor. And when we come back, we'll finish the rest of Glenn Lane's story. And Glenn, Glenn Lane, too, passed away back in 2011. But his story, his voice, you still hear it. And we're going to keep playing this every year, forever, here on Our American Stories. This is our American Stories, our final segment, celebrating or honoring and commemorating Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941. Glenn Lane's story, we pick up where he left off. Glenn then swam to safety and climbed aboard a fishing boat. And here he talks about what he did next to help the wounded before he was asked, before he was asked. To help fight fires,
11: so I went out and started helping get wounded guys on the, on the life rafts, and to get them headed over to the hospital over there toward the Navy Hospital, Navy Yard, and it got done there. And then they asked, they passed the word for, they need some men back after to fight fires, so went back there, and the way we fought fires, throw a mattress in the water, soak it, and then, then throw it up to you, and you put it on your back, and you go up the ladder, and you go up there on a the boat deck where the where the fires were. They throw that mattress down there and stomp on it and then run back and get another, another mattress. Well, about two trips up through that, that two ladders up to the boat deck, I'm worn out because I've, I've had it, see, and I carrying them stupid heavy mattresses. And, uh, well, I stepped over guys that were laying there, their arms were blown off and their heads were blown off and everything else. But uh, it, it, I was in such a state that it didn't seem to bother me. Uh, and then I was so tired and I just, I had to get out of the way, because I, I was too weak to carry mattress up topside anymore. So I, and I tell you, I was a pretty, pretty sturdy young man, but uh, it had been quite a day.
0: Len was tired and didn't realize that he was bleeding until someone checked on him while he was sleeping.
11: I went in their blacksmith shop that was down there by their number three turret someplace. And I went over in a corner and I laid down. I was just, And all I wanted to do was sleep. I, I was just worn out completely. And if you ever really had fatigue, you know what I'm talking about. But, and I, I, I went to sleep, and then a couple guys are shaking me, and I see their Corman, and I said, are you all right? And I said, I'm okay, just leave me alone, let me sleep, I'm okay. My guy says, he's hurt, he's bleeding. And he says, how come you're all oil, all oil soaked? I said, I'm off to Arizona. He said, good God, he says, you, we better we better get you to sick bay. I so said started moving and boy I hurt I hurt bad when I started moving. I yelled at them, Leave me alone. You're hurt. Have you had morphine? No. So they gave me a of morphine and they're like putting a nice warm bath over, it, you see. And I didn't hurt anymore. And then they I said, Well, we have we got no place in Sick Bay, so so they put me on a motor launch and I headed for they hauled me to the solace, the hospital ship. I'll go down all along the battleships. Here's the California sinking. Here's the the Oklahoma capsized. Here's the West Virginia burning and sinking, sunk. And behind her, the Arizona is in a shambles. I oh, said, "Good God!" There's our battle fleet.
0: I can't imagine. You just can't imagine. Now on board a hospital ship, Glenn Lane first thought he had been captured by Japanese. Before he realized that he was lucky compared to the dying soldiers that he was next to.
11: It must have been hours later because I was laying there half asleep, asleep probably. And somebody woke me up and here, drink this. And they stubbed a uh, tube thing in my mouth to have some soup, see. And I looked at the guy and he's Oriental. And I thought, oh God, they've captured us, see. And I get the hell away from me. I knocked the thing out of his hands. Get away from me, you so-and-so Jap. I don't know, part of you trying to poison me or something, you know. And I look at some corner and say, hey, you know, he's one of ours, he's one of our orderlies. He's he's okay. He's okay, say he's okay, see? So they brought me another fill, and I was but awful hungry. But I sucked that soup completely down through busted lips and uh, blistered lips and but I drank all the soup they had anyway. I spent quite a number of days on a hospital ship. Of course I didn't feel too bad because I see guys in the bunks next to me that were we were dying, and I wasn't
0: dying. Glenn Lane retired in Oak Harbor, Washington, as a Master Chief Petty Officer. After 30 years in the Navy, he suffered shrapnel wounds and burns, but didn't receive a Purple Heart until 2004. He passed away on December 10, 2011, just over seven decades after the attack. And now we want to bring you in its entirety the President of the United States addressed to the nation the very next day. Roosevelt wrote this himself. Others had had additions, wanted to put more language, more words. He said no. This one needed to be short. He needed to walk to the podium, which he did, and it was hard for him. He leaned on his son, as I said earlier, and on his cane on the other side, and then delivered this speech
9: The United States was at peace with that nation and at solicitation of Japan, still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, It contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attacks. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications For the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but
1: always
9: will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory.
0: 521 words, perfect words, Gettysburg 266, the best American speeches, the shortest. By the way, there was one edit he made towards the end. Originally, he had written a date that will live in history, and he changed it to a date that will live in infamy. And what a difference a word can make. What a difference words can make. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We celebrate Pearl Harbor through the lives of two survivors who were no longer with us, but their words Their heroism always remain with us.